Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So tonight's class is the 11th class in our 13-class structured study of the Eightfold Path. I added uh, one sutta to the end of our study. Um, this sutta is the Kakaya Nagata Sutta. Kakaya uh, Gata was it's a, a gentleman's name in the original Sangha, a monk. Um, and he's questioning what, how does right view relate to a view of the world. What is the right view of the world? Uh, and so this sutta um, is another sutta you, that is on dependent origination and how um, understanding the nature of stress brings liberation and freedom from entanglements in the world. And let me just read the sutta. The Buddha was staying at Savati at Jita's Grove, Anatha Pandika's mon- monastery. The monk, Kakayana Gata, approached the Buddha with a question. I don't understand right view. Can you teach me how right view relates to the world? So, of course, that's what we're all dealing with. How do I relate to the world? Kakayana, the confusion and deluded thinking in the world arises from polarizing views. You've heard me say often the, the prison of two ideas. We get caught in it's either this or that. Uh, that's what's led to the kind of the idea of either life either is dualistic, uh, meaning it's either this or that, or it's non-dual, meaning everything resolves in some kind of cosmic soup where we all um, kind of get lost and all of our ideas and all of our uh, fabrications can be resolved in this unity consciousness. We were talking about that earlier or one mind, or whatever the else, whatever else is that we think we're evolving to, that eliminates the individual human life in favor of some type of existence that is extraordinary. The confusion and deluded thinking in the world arises from polarizing views. There is the view of permanent existence and a view of permanent non-existence. So we, that, that's the, the need for salvation. I either have to establish myself as someone who deludes themselves about living forever in this human life and when one faced the the clear understanding that this life is limited to this life or the compensatory and fabricated view that once this life is over, there is eternal life in some kind of realm. And then that even breaks down to different categories of religion such as if I do a few things wrong, I got to spend kind of a long time burning up in a certain place and then I might get out of that. Again, very confusing and inconsistent views that are all developed from a misunderstanding of human life and it, and it all arises out of that. When the origination of confused and deluded thinking is understood and abandoned, from right view it is seen that non-existence does not occur. Furthermore, when the cessation of confused and deluded thinking is understood and abandoned, from right view would have seen that existence does not occur. So the Buddha is not teaching annihilation. He's just he's teaching that that I don't need my conditioned thinking to continue to establish myself in the world. 
Once I let go of all these fabricated views, then my life is simply a series of life unfolding. I'm not questioning where my existence comes from or where it might go. I am now just a reference point to life as life occurs. And so for most people, the mind might even go to, okay, well, how long does that last? That's the, that's the diluted factor of taking me out of this moment and wondering what's going to happen to me. Well, what's going to happen to me is what's happening to me, as long as I can understand it. If I don't understand it, I'm always going to be reacting to what might be happening to me. I hope that's clear. And it will be shortly. The world is sustained by attachments, by clinging to conditioned thinking and wrong views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. One who has developed right view no longer clings to attachments or fixated or conditioned thinking or self-obsession. It is understood that stress arising is simply stress arising. Meaning in this moment when there is, there is something that I would prefer to not occur, even if, in, even if it's in, in its most mundane and ordinary occurrence, such as I feel sick, or I'm concerned about getting older, or I'm worried about my death, or I'm worried that I might not get what I think I need in this moment to be happy and secure, or I'm concerned that something might occur to me that would take me away from my safety and security. Or I'm simply concerned about having this body and being in this world. Nothing seems to be working out. I'm inadequate for this world. I'm not this way or that way. Why do things keep happening to me? Or why do things keep happening in the world that are a threat to me? We're all caught up in that right now. All of those questions are rooted in deluded thinking and take us away from life as life occurs, from simply being a reference point to this moment. In this, their knowledge is independent of other views. Understanding stress is independent of other views. That's so important. It's pointing to the limiting factor of the Eightfold Path and why we stress so often here to keep our practice focused and framed by this Eightfold Path because it's so easy to, to cling or de become dependent on other views. The Buddha... the. The remarkable aspect of Siddhartha Gautama's under, understanding is it was the first and only teaching I've ever come across that was independent of other views, that is self-contained. It is its own thing. The Eightfold Path is not tainted by other views and it cannot be tainted by other views. But we can embellish the Eightfold Path by making it a ninefold path or an, or an infinite path, meaning grasping at every new agey idea that might appeal to us, or we can simply awaken. We can let go of the need for this moment and myself in this moment to be any different than I am and apply the, the understanding developed through the Dhamma, the limiting factors of the Dhamma, and understand stress as stress arises. Understand the eye-making in this moment. I'm going to read that again. In this, their knowledge is independent of other views. This is how right view relates to the world. This view is independent of other views. It's framed by the Eightfold Path. The view that every, the Buddha continues, the view that everything exists is a wrong view, and the view that nothing exists is another wrong view. So for those caught up in the prison of two ideas, it would think that if there's not one or the other, there's nothing. But when you understand it, abandoning those extreme views allows us to simply be present for what is here, which is life as life occurs. 
we, we lose the notion that I existed in the past and my past is determining the future. Because those questions are already answered. How are they answered? By what's occurring. What the Terragatha teaches us, what is to be is what is here. Whatever my life can be in this moment is what is occurring in this moment. That doesn't mean that the next moment might have a little bit more insight, but it might also have a little bit more ignorance, depending on the quality of my mind in this moment. Is my mind limited by this, this eightfold path by right view? Or am I still clinging to some notion that is rooted in eye-making, rooted in ignorance of four noble truths? And if so, my well-focused and well-informed Dharma practice will show me just that. That's what it's for. So it's not... It's an aspect of Dharma practice to recognize where our ignorance lies. That's not something that says, oh, I'm doing something wrong because I'm coming up against my own ignorance. In fact, it's, it's the Dhamma telling us, yes, you're developing right view. You're recognizing and abandoning your ignorance manifesting in this moment. Wise restraint. You, you heard me say it over and over again. I'll never get tired of saying it. The Dhamma can only be practiced right here and right now. And how do we do that? We do it through jhana meditation. Jhana meditation provides a concentration to be present for this moment. And the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path provide the right view to see this moment, my life, in relation to this moment, and another way of saying in relation to this moment would be say my life in relation to the world. Because our whole life is a relational experience, isn't it? It's how am I relating to the world? And if my view is rooted in a right view, understanding the nature of human life, then my experience will have deep meaning and purpose. Why? Because it's present. And for no other reason. Not because it's a profound understanding. Not, not because it's some special understanding that only I can have or only special people with a lot of meditation can have. No. It's because I'm experiencing the utter humanity in this moment. In all of it. In order to do that, we have to allow for this moment to be as it is. We learn the difference between acceptance and approval. In fact, the sutta is all about understanding that difference between acceptance and approval. I no longer have to approve anything as long as I accept it. And the truth of the matter is, if I think I have to approve of something before I accept it, there's never any acceptance, is there? Because there's always that self-referential judgment that's pitting me against what's occurring. I need this moment to be different. And any time I feel that I need this moment to be different, what I'm really saying is I need me to be different. Because what's out there can't be any different, can it? Can it? No, Venerable Sir. How, yeah, how could it be? It's occurring. The, the resolution isn't, it was on making a point, the resolution isn't in something magical or mystical. It's right in front of us, except we don't want to see it. Because we don't want to see it as us. We don't want to experience the chaos that is always inherent in the world. I looked out on the world, the world is a flame, a flame with what? The fires of passion. It's always going to be like that. But we can disentangle ourselves, and so disentangle ourselves from all the passions in the world by developing the Dhamma. And in that way, and as this sutta points out, and as all the Dhamma points out, we can remain conflict-free in a, in a world that is prone to conflict. It's the point of the Dhamma. The Buddha then says, 
I teach from the middle, and this is the true understanding of the middle way. This isn't a, 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 a pacific way, a pacifying way of living in the world. In fact, it's a deeply engaged way that would stand up to true injustice when it occurs, but wouldn't get caught up in, 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 in establishing a cause where none is needed. I teach from the middle. I teach the Eightfold Path as the middle way that avoids extremes. So do we want to know how to avoid the, old, the, the extremes views that are inherent in a mind rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths? How do I do it? From the limiting factor of the Eightfold Path. It is the Eightfold Path that avoids extreme views. So, John, is the three types of craving the extreme views you're referring to? Yes, the three types of craving, right? The, the bodily craving, the verbal, what's the other craving? Becoming, the and, becoming and sense desires. And, and through sense desires. Is that the extreme? So, any time in this moment that I feel I need to become something other than I am in this moment. It's such an important question and very subtle. That is the essence of eye-making. So again, it doesn't mean that I'm not living a life and, and developing things and achieving things. But all of those achievements, all of, those be, all of that becoming is framed by an eightfold path through understanding what's occurring. And when I understand the nature of stress arising and passing away, I understand it's not just... Um, it's not just an acorn falling out of the tree that, or I'm, not, I'm thinking of Isaac Newton. It's not an apple that falls out of a tree and hits me in the head that gives me the idea that that's stress and suffering. Because even having the apple fall into my hand and taking a bite of a delicious apple is still stressful when I need that to happen. When that, that pleasurable moment of biting into a fresh apple leads to more desire and needing more apples and then creating a, a bigger hut with a big fence around it to keep in all my apples. It's all involved in eye-making instead of taking the bite of the apple and moving on to the next moment. And knowing that the next moment will be just as fulfilling as that pleasant moment. Why? Not because of what I'm getting. Not because of any, any kind of special understanding. Not because I get a whole bushel of apples that I might not have deserved or thought that I deserved. It's because I'm present for it. That's all. And I'm present for it when the apple falls and when the apple doesn't fall. I'm present for all of life. And when the apple doesn't fall, and I recognize that it didn't fall, I can enjoy that moment. Because I'm not recognizing that I didn't get the apple. I'm recognizing that I'm alive for not getting the apple. Am I clear on that? Life is all of that. The, 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 the poignancy in, in life is being okay with not but also being okay with yes when I get something and not losing my mind over it and not needing more of it. To be at peace with what is occurring, no matter what, without any self-reference. The middle way shows that from ignorance of four noble truth as a requisite condition comes fabrications. This is the beginning of dependent origination. When I, when I want something to be different than it is because my mind is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, that is the requisite condition that leads to a fabrication of this moment, a corruption of my view in relation to the world. Remember how this, this sutta started. How does right view relate to the world? So when my view is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, prone to fabrication, then everything I see from that moment my view of myself in relation to the world is rooted in fabrications. From those fabrications, 
As a requisite condition comes consciousness. Excuse me. So what the Buddha is teaching us here is that because my mind is rooted in ignorance of, of the way human life is, I can't help but form a corrupted view of, of my life in relation to the world, a fabricated view. And that view is what's feeding my consciousness, my ongoing thinking. And we have to, have to dissolve, dissuade ourselves from the understanding that, we're, that consciousness refers to cosmic consciousness. And I, make it, I, I, I emphasize this point because so many of us have grown up with this idea that there's such a thing as a cosmic consciousness or that Buddhism is about developing some type of cosmic consciousness or cosmic understanding. It is none of that. And it's, it's something the Buddha addressed directly during his time. All that we're talking about and all that we're ever talking about in consciousness in Buddhism, or at least in the Buddha's Dhamma, is ongoing thinking, either rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths or awakened consciousness, a, a type of consciousness that has recognized and abandoned this ignorance. But as long as that mind is rooted in fabrications, that ongoing thinking rooted in that type of consciousness, the Buddha teaches that from that consciousness, as a requisite condition, comes name and form. I had a good talk with, with Dev earlier about this. Name and form, the Pali word is Nama Rupa which means I've associated a name to a form. I've given a name to this form. I'm taking things personal. Nama Rupa. From taking things personal as a requisite condition comes the sixth sense face. The five physical senses and that sixth sense of consciousness now rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. So why is this mentioned twice in, these, in three steps? It's because first the Buddha is teaching us that our thinking is rooted in ignorance. And now he's telling us Take notice that now you're interpreting your experience in the world through your senses, but you're interpreting it from a consciousness that has a wrong view, an inherent wrong view. It's a consciousness that is rooted in ignorance of how to, how to interpret what's occurring in a non-personal way. From name and form, from taking things personal as a requisite condition comes the sixth sense base. From that sixth sense base, from now interpreting things from a wrong view, comes contact. Again, notice the progression. The, this aspect of dependent origination occurs each and every moment outside of the a framework of time, meaning we don't notice that it's occurring. And you can say that it happens so fast, but that can lead to thinking, well, maybe I should slow it down so I can observe it. No, we don't have to observe it. We can just recognize it's what's occurring because I'm confused in this moment. I'm distressed in this moment. From the sixth sense base, as a requisite condition, comes contact. So now I'm coming in contact with the world, but my interpretive vehicle, my consciousness, is still rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So whatever occurs to me, good, bad, or indifferent, is going to have that ignorant label attached to it. I can't help it, because my view is rooted in that ignorance. From contact, as a requisite condition, comes feeling. So my mind is rooted in ignorance of what's occurring in the world, but it occurs anyway. And I still have to come to grips with it. I still have a mind that has to interpret this in some way. That's the human condition. And if that mind is rooted in awareness and understanding, resting in jhana meditation, then each and every moment will be free of conflict because it understands what's occurring. It doesn't create something out of nothing. But a mind rooted in ignorance will always continue eye-making in what's occurring. 
from feeling as a requisite condition comes craving. So something occurs to me and it feels good, it feeds my ego or it, it helps establish me better in the world and so I want more of it. Why do I want more of it? Because it gave me me. Or something occurs to me that feels painful or feels like it might take away something from me. I feel unsafe in the moment. I feel fearful. And I want that moment to be different. That's called aversion, but it's just another side of the same coin of craving. I want this moment to be different than it is. From that craving as a requisite condition comes clinging and maintaining. So now that my craving is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, and it, it created a reaction to me and in me, I am now clinging to that, either more or less, or the ambigu ambiguity of this moment, I don't want it at all. I need something to be different. I need something to distract me from this moment. Is anyone not following me in this progression? Okay. From craving as a requisite condition comes clinging and maintaining. This... I don't want to give the impression that this is just clinging to an object like tomorrow's brand new car that I'm picking up. And most importantly, it's craving for and clinging to or maintaining wrong views. Because the idea that I, I can't wait to get that new car tomorrow because it's going to make me more of me is craving for the idea and clinging to that notion that it's going to somehow make me different or better or I'll get more girls because of it. All of it is, is just creating stress in this moment. So even tomorrow morning... And I am. I'm going to pick up a brand new Lamborghini tomorrow morning. <laughs> Even tomorrow morning when I go and pick up my brand new Lamborghini and drive it down the, down the road with the top down, waving at the pretty <laughs> girls, and they laugh at me, what happened to me? I just realized what a fool I am. And I got, I'm just creating, showing you the scenario that we all might create in our minds that just lead to further stress and suffering instead of, wait a minute. I don't need a Lamborghini or a Carmen Gee. Does anybody know what a Carmen Gee is anymore? <laughs> yeah. 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 They, they, they're both are impersonal objects. It has nothing to do with me. And whether I'm tooling down the road in a Carmen Gia, and I actually had one, or a Lamborghini that I'll never have one, I'm still the same person. And there's nothing that I can attach to me that's going to change me ever except the way that I think about myself except letting go of every fabricated view that I've ever had of myself. And that might sound like an overwhelming task to people first coming to the Dhamma. But it really is encapsulated in just one idea that we need to let go of. But we have so much attached to that one idea that it becomes very, very difficult at times, or it seems very confusing. But the one idea is just this. I need to be different than I am. And the resolution is, through understanding Four Noble Truths, is I can't be any different than I am. How can I be? If I could, I would be. But I can't. Popeye was right. Was right. <laughs> I am what I am. Always. And again, it doesn't mean that I can't change and become something different or, or develop a different understanding or more understanding. But in this moment, I am what I am. That's where my liberation is, is I was going to say it arises from that. It's rooted in that. And what am I liberating myself from? Not from the world, but from my own wrong views. 
And so what is, what is keeping me in prison? What is the prison of two ideas? It's that I need to be something other than I am. Because I can't be. From craving as a requisite condition comes clinging and maintaining. From clinging and maintaining as a requisite condition comes becoming. As long as I'm clinging to, to wrong views, ignorant of four noble truths, I can only hope to become further ignorant. Unless something comes to interrupt that. From becoming as a requisite condition comes birth. Again, we're not talking about a physical birth, of course, in this context. What we're talking about is giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. And this is the only type of birth that the Buddha is concerned about and we as Dhamma practitioners are concerned about. Because we understand that I've already had a physical birth, I'm here, and this is the one birth that I get to awaken in. So I better do it now. That understanding is so important. And it's one of the understandings that um, many, many people have, a diff- have difficulty incorporating, especially at very subtle levels, because we don't want to admit that this is it, that we're one and done. But it's important to understand that. If we're going to awaken, if we're going to actually have a human life, we better wake up and have it. Because as far as I know, and, any, and no, any, everybody else that's ever lived on this planet knows, this is all we get. Nobody's ever come back and said, yeah, I was there and it's pretty cool. Or there, I was there and it was pretty hot. <laughs> from becoming as a requisite condition comes birth. From birth as a requisite condition comes aging, sickness, death, mm. sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. The Buddha is saying, as a consequence of having a life, there's going to be sickness, there's going to be aging, and guess what? There's going to be death. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be regret. There's going to be pain, distress, and despair. Why is the Buddha teaching it? Why is it taking an awakened human being to point out the obvious? Because we don't want to see the obvious. We don't want to accept the fact that I'm having a human life, and at times, that life is unpleasant or unfulfilling or just plain, outright boring. That's human life. Such is the origination of extreme views and the entire mass of confusion, delusion, and stress. Then the Buddha says, he doesn't leave us right there, you know, he's already described how do we arrive at a stressful existence, moment by moment. Ignorance of four noble truths. So how do we undo it? Now, from the remainderless fading and cessation of that very ignorance, the very ignorance of four noble truths, comes a cessation of fabrication. So once we develop an understanding of the nature of stress, then we will cease corrupting our own views. And once that happens, from the cessation of fabrication, comes the cessation of consciousness, comes the cessation of ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. From the cessation of that type of consciousness or conditioned thinking, comes the cessation of name and form, or the ending of taking things personal. From the cessation of name and form, from from ending taking things personal, comes the cessation of the sixth sense base. Again, the Buddha is not teaching annihilation or upon awakening, we no longer have the interpretive vehicle for human life, our senses. Remember the context. From the cessation of that type of thinking, I now stop, stop, stop using my senses to interpret life incorrectly. And so what am I left with? I'm left with a six-property person that is now 
finding great meaning in each and every moment. How can that be? Because I'm present for each and every moment. I'm not getting a prize in this moment. I'm just living this moment. And I shouldn't even say it that way. I'm not just living this moment. I'm living this moment. From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of the sixth sense base. From the cessation of the sixth sense base comes the cessation of contact. So now I'm, li- I'm walking in the world, living in the world, in contact with the world, but I'm no longer interpreting it in an, in a, uh, an ignorant way, in a baseless way, you could say. So contact with the world no longer has an effect on me. I'm simply present. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. From the cessation of feeling comes the cessation of craving. I'm no longer getting a rise. Nothing is causing a reaction in me. Remember the fourth foundation of mindfulness? Pure equanimity. A balanced quality of mind, no matter what's occurring. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging or sustenance. Clinging and maintaining, excuse me. So since I am no longer reacting to life because I have depersonalized my life through my thinking, I'm no longer giving rise to any moment rooted in ignorance. No matter what is occurring to me, now is conflict-free. From the cessation of clinging and sustenance comes the cessation of becoming further ignorant. From the cessation of becoming further ignorant comes the cessation of birth, of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. From the cessation of birth, then aging and death, sorrow, regret, pain and distress and despair all cease. Of course, the Buddha's not, we don't, we don't stop aging. And we don't protect ourselves from death. We stop reacting to it or being distracted by it. We simply accept the fact that as a consequence of having a human life, yes, there's going to be times of sickness. There's going to be times when I feel the effect of aging. And there's going to be time when I know that I will die. This, this life will come to an end. Radical acceptance of all of those things allows me to be present for all of it. I don't need it to be any different. Such is the cessation of this entire mass of stress and suffering <clears throat> through understanding. That is the end of the sutta. Such is the cessation of this entire mass of stress and suffering through understanding what it means to have a human life in this moment and all of the eye-making present in this moment. And once I, once I can abandon that, once I can simply be a human being, which is all that I can ever be, Right? Would anybody argue that I can be anything more than a six-property person? You'll lose the argument, anyway. <laughs> it could be a good argument. Then I'm free to just be a human being. What a radical notion. Because even during the Buddha's time, remember, the Buddha grew up a prince in his father's kingdom. He had a certain persona about him. And he was going to be a ruler throughout his life. He was going to be a man of great power and prestige, wealth. And none of it made any sense to him. And so he left, he left that life behind, and he began to live an ordinary human life. And he found that just as confusing for about six years, until he realized for that entire six years he was trying to become something. And it was only went through his understanding of the foolishness of becoming. Remember the Nagara Sutta, where the Buddha talks about being caught up in the feedback loop 
of his own becoming, trying to establish himself, fabricate itself in the world, did he then have this breakthrough of understanding. And the breakthrough of understanding is, wait a minute, I don't have to do anything to be a human being. And none of us ever have to do anything to be human beings. And none of us have to justify being a human being. How could you? You're there. That's the radical acceptance that Siddhartha Gautama and that taught us and that, we're still, that we are developing now 2,600 years later. We don't need to be any different because we can't be any different. That's tonight's talk. Um, I'll go to Brian. Brian, how are you tonight? Good, John. Just uh, stay in Jersey with your Lambo, please. <laughs> yeah, I better. <laughs> we used to have a joke when my, my, my father had a, um, an 89 um, Camaro, which is the cars are really low on the seat. My dad, seat, my dad was even shorter than me, and he was driving well into his 90s when he probably shouldn't. And the joke in the family was, if you ever see a white 89 Camaro going down the road with nobody driving, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, you know, this one really struck me as you were going through this that the the polarity that the Buddha is talking about just feels hardwired into human nature yeah mm-hmm. um, you know the, the night and day cycle the circadian rhythm you know love and hate like like all the yep. dichotomies all the polarity and he, he picked one right which was existence and non-existence he could have picked any of them yep um, and the the fact that humans just gravitate towards one side of the pole or the other with that wrong view and that, that ignorance and they become attached to one side or the other and then they suffer and they don't understand. And, um, then I also found it similar to, um, impermanence. If it wasn't for impermanence, we couldn't awaken. If it wasn't for polarity, we wouldn't have right view versus wrong view. Yeah. So it's, it's this necessary concept to, to navigate the Dhamma, which I just found fascinating. And, and so, yeah, the, the, we've created, all of the structures that we've created as a society, good and bad, are rooted in that original misunderstanding of reality. Every, every yeah. one of them. And because if we did understand reality, there would be no competition between, I mean, we really would have that utopic Existence, and that's not what we're teaching here, but of course that's what we would we would be like. We would we really would just take care of each other, and isn't it interesting or the paradox of all of this this idea of evolving as a species, because it's rooted in ignorance, we'll never get to where we hope we could get to. Right. And and I mean it really is crazy when you look at it. But again, there it is. There's polarizing ideas that we must have in order to keep a fabricated existence going on. But that is the earthly plane. If this is what it's he, it's not what it's here for, it's what it is. And so to think that it should be any different, that sometime even as a as a global species we should be different than we are, is rooted in ignorance. Maybe we will be, but what is right what is going on right now? Same old stuff. Thank you, Brian. Hello, Jeff. Oh, John, thanks for the teaching. I'll just listen tonight. Glad you joined us. Hello, Scott. Hello, John. How are you, my friend? Um, 
I just want to give you credit for uh, pulling a great deal of meaning out of this reading, so thank you for that. Um, very, very uh, helpful. Uh, what, what occurred to me from the reading was that those of us who have been through all of the various uh, sects and communes and meditation groups and gurus, uh, one thing that they all seem to have in common more or less is uh, a direction of you need to be something other than human. Yeah. Somehow holy or, yep. or joining with angels or mm -hmm. beings somewhere over the clouds. And this is uh, a dharma, thankfully, that seems to say the opposite, which is you need to be more human or just human. Yeah. And, and brush everything else away. So um, th that's what came through from this reading. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Isn't that refreshing? You know, well, well, I, and I keep going back to Popeye was right. Hello, Jane. Hi, John. Thank you for the teaching. You know, as I said before, I realized I spent my life with this fabricated notion of who I was and what I was supposed to do to fit into the world. And I never would have figured it out on my own that yeah. what I need to do is just to be present in the moment and you know, live life as it occurs without the need for it to be different. Yeah. I mean, mind blowing. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and now you're you're uh, you're okay. I remember. I think I said it to to Dev maybe before I mentioned the book by M. Scott Peck. I'm okay. You're okay. The the problem with the book, it's a good idea or a good notion, isn't it? But the book doesn't teach you how to get to being okay. You know, we, we can. Uh, Dev, I mentioned you. How are you, Dev? I'm good. I'm finding this. Uh... Very compelling. I think I'm actually starting to understand dependent origination. And, oh, finally! Uh, yeah, <laughs> finally. And uh, I, I just want to keep listening. Please, keep going. <laughs> I'm done. That's it. That's all you get from me tonight. Yeah, I'm done. I just uh, I want to keep listening and I want to hear this over again, too, because I, I, I really want to... Uh, now that I'm getting it more, I, I want to apply my concentration, my, my attention on this process that, that, that you're describing. Yeah, thank you, Devin. I, I would say, um, yes, that, that we need to do that, but we should not overemphasize or grasp after understanding dependent origination because we can get lost in the weeds. Uh, so this is a foundational teaching that is explained through the other suttas and through our own direct experience. We, we see it happening within us. But I will say that when you look at the, the progression from ignorance of Four Noble Truths come fabrications, come consciousness, etc. When any one of those 12 links are recognized and abandoned, the whole, this is why the metaphor is good as a chain, the whole chain, the whole 12 link chain of dependencies falls apart. And it is just that way. And that's why I said that once we get to that, that root idea that it's my thinking, it's my eye making in this moment that I abandon, that, that leads to awaken or leads to understanding is just that. It, and so uh, the limiting factor of the Eightfold Path is constantly bringing us back to that one point. You know, and I'm glad you joined us, Deb. Um, who else is there online? I can't read the name. Who else is there? Is this... Kevin. Oh, Kevin. Yeah, there's Kevin. I'm sorry, Kevin. Uh, I think we've got to have to have a policy. You need to come on screen so I can see who's there because I can't read your name. <laughs> I don't have anything to add tonight. Thank you for the teaching, John. I'm glad you joined. Master's week, huh? 
It's the best week of the year the Masters is on. It's, it's a golf tournament. Hello, Laura. Hi, John. Yes, this was so uh, helpful because as you were talking and, and teaching, I realized that this um, totally, I guess, refutes the idea that maybe I'm still subtly clinging to the idea that, you know, I am what has happened to me. Like, I am my failures or my achievements and still clinging to that, you know, identity based on what's happened in my past. But not that we shouldn't make amends if something, you know, in our past mm -hmm. happened or you went should. wrong or, you know, but that's totally wrong view for me to cling to that idea. So I'm able to kind of see now where I'm still doing that because I still have moments of that, you know, clinging to that that eye making and yeah. um, you know based on past experiences but not that those experiences don't matter or were insignificant but at the same time it's wrong view to project those you know into my um, experience now yep yeah. because they're so, already done right yeah but it also is true that we are we are a culmination of all of our experiences, except we should not let those determine how we think and how we feel about this moment. Right, right. And so, and so we can learn from our human life. We should. Mm -hmm. What should we learn? Four noble truths. This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. And this is the eightfold path leading to the cessation of stress. So we can... We can um, extrapolate that into our past and our history mm -hmm. and we could even get distracted by using that to kind of create a fabricated future or we can use it as intended and in saying what is to be is what is here this is what I am in this moment so all of the things that have happened to me have created the me that I am including Dharma practice and so you can you can see the progression of ignorance leading up to, like, let's say I came to the Dhamma when I was 40 years old. And so you can see the progression of ignorance to 40, and then you can see the progression towards awakening from 40 on. And so it's all part of life, what's occurring in this moment. What's occurring in this moment is you're moving towards awakening, towards full human maturity. Mm -hmm. And you're doing it. And you could be doing anything else tonight. And all of those things would be wonderful. Or that, well, maybe say this, all of those things would be things. <laughs> and you're doing this thing. There's nothing extraordinary about this, mm -hmm. except for you it is. And for me it is. This is the most meaningful moment I've ever had in my life. And it is. And why? It's not because of you wonderful people. <laughs> it's because I'm present for being with you wonderful people. And you are, you're, the, you're seeing that. And I bet you understand now that, that any ordinary moment is its own reward. You don't need it to be any different. Do, do you, I think you understand that. You may not fully grasp it, mm -hmm. but because this is what's occurring. It, so it, it doesn't, there's no, other, there's no other flavor to life save the, this flavor, you know, this now, understanding. Mm -hmm. And that's everything. Yeah. <laughs>
Pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Rob. Hello, John. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I read a sutta not so long ago where somebody comes to the Buddha with a question about dependent origination, and he says something to the effect of, if you live to be a thousand years, you could come up with ten questions a day about dependent origination. It is that deep. Um, and uh, this this reading of, of dependent origination kind of put that back into it. It's like there's so much depth in that. Every yeah. step has needs to be for, for it to be an effective knowledge. You, you really have to penetrate this stuff deeply. Yeah. Uh, but then you know you can find the thread of of the bad sweater as I call it and just pull on it and there yep. goes the whole thing. Yeah, it's just like that. You know, once you understand the context, you know, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. And until until you have and that doesn't take long, but until you understand I think I was saying to Dev early today, if you just read this one sutta and assume this was everything that the Buddha taught, you would say, well, this is nonsense, you know, this is, mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense at all. But in context you really do see, yeah, this is this is in, in what previous, he awakened yeah, to. In previous readings of of the reverse, that reverse started from suffering. Yep. Here he starts from ignorance. Yep. To undo things. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh, <laughs> where am I now? Yeah. yeah. And it, it's uh, but you're right. It's it's not you know trying to grasp the whole thing. It's just realizing those those moments in your life where you think, oh, this that. Yeah. It really is a description of how do we I make, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. because of ignorance of foreign old truths. And it, tell, it goes right through the process of internal I making from a wrong view to it affecting my consciousness you know, as I come in contact with it to forming a perception or a fabricate or a continued fabrication of what's occurring. And again, I get stuck in I need this, I need more of this, I need less of it. And I've lost a moment. Hello, David. Hello, John. Uh, powerful. Very powerful. And I agree. What a teacher. What a teacher. <laughs> what a teacher. And I, and I think of the questions that often come up from the Sangha of, well, what do I do? What, what am I? Yeah. And I, I think of the Buddha, if he chose after his awakening, could have gone home and been awakened yep. and been a king and he would have been the same. Yeah. And, you know, you do whatever you want, but in the waking view, if you choose to be a powerful person of industry, you just do it awakened. Yeah. And that's Yes. So, and that's all you could be at that moment. And that's the powerful part of it. Yeah. And again, such a good example. And so what did Siddhartha Gautama do? He could have been anything. He could have gone back and be ascended his father's throne. Instead, he hung out with his buddies and talked to Dhamma, taught the Dhamma the rest of his life. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for pointing it out. That was the most important thing for him to do, was just that. And you're, he was in a position that he could have done anything he could have been the king of northern India if he wanted. 
He would have been a very good king. Because yeah, he would have been. He would have been a, a, a pacifying king, as opposed to all the, you know, there was a very bloody time during India's history, you know, during the Buddhist time. He said, no, nah, I'm going to hang out here and sit around a little bit, <laughs> talk to some friends. Thank you, baby. Hello, Matt. John, good to see you. Thank you for the teaching. Thank you. Noble silence. Glad you're here. All right, so we're going to, um, let me just, just, just say, finish this class like this. In relate, there, Things are, are um, more pronounced in the world, I'll put it that way. And so apply this teaching to that. And, and uh, I think you'll find it helpful in developing a deeper understanding of what's going on in the world right now. Because it's all rooted in this, uh, a lack of understanding that um, has grown into, into societal systems that are now um, coming to loggerheads. You know, we're, we're uh, in a very broad sense, I think we're, gonna, we're defining uh, these societal structures in a new way. And I, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good or it's going to be bad. It just means that we're in a time of uh, rapid transition and apply this to it because what's occurring still is human life going on moment by moment. There, there is, as hard as it is, I guess this is what I'm trying to say, as hard as it is to see it this way, there's nothing personal going on in the world unless we make it so. So we'll finish with meta as we always do. If I can find my thing, there it is. All right, so take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.